lot of these people who were on opioids absolutely positively have major addictive personalities and problems mm -hmm. and mental illness of other types. Yeah, that because makes sense. Nobody, nobody takes the opi opioids in a vacuum. And the idea here is, is that you have to have enough mental health facilities, and that's where Obamacare and the Medicaid came in. If they don't have coverage, no one will take them. No one will take these mentally ill people and treat them because they're not being paid for. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, and I'm here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. In today's podcast, we're talking about healthcare and a bunch of other interesting stuff. Our guest is Dr. Martin Levine D.O. He's the clinical dean of the Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York. He's also given Mike Tyson a physical twice. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graff Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graff Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. Martin, give us a little background. You graduated from osteopathic medical school, and then what? I practiced uh, family medicine in Bayonne in Jersey City for 35 years. Uh, in that capacity, I took care of uh, four and five generations of the same family, made house calls, went to nursing homes, went to five different hospitals, uh, scrubbed on all my patient surgeries in the beginning until that got too burdensome. Uh, but... Uh, it was interesting because I got asked to be the doctor for many other entities. Uh, one was the city of Bayonne, which I started in 1984 and did it through 2016. I also uh, became a sports medicine physician at the request of many different sports, many different teams, and everything from rec league to, uh, to pros. So I've been a team physician at every level of sport, including did, the Olympics. Did you... Did you ever do anything with Mike Tyson? Yes. Uh, I was asked to uh, actually do a physical on him uh, whenever a, uh, an event is going to take place. An insurance policy is taken out so that in case that person can't perform, who pays the, t the redemption of the tickets and that kind of thing uh, kind of happens. So it gets complicated. But uh, I examined Mike Tyson twice. Once in 90, the first time was in 91, and it was before a, a fight in which he uh, had, no one knew about it, but he had a major scar in his forehead, and they wanted to make sure that it had healed before the fight. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a, uh, but it was a complete physical, um, and it was, uh, the, it took place in Atlantic City, and it was before he was 
incarcerated for the... Uh, so they flew you out to Atlantic City for the physical? Well, I was drove down because I'm in New Jersey. Oh, so, Atlantic City. Yeah, I was, I was thinking. And then the second time I examined him, it was after he was uh, incarcerated. And uh, it was at his home at the time, outside of, uh, east of Cleveland, in an area of uh, the, the area of Ohio in which uh, there's predominantly Amish living. And he was a much different individual, personality-wise, between the first and the second. Did Mike Tyson time. scare you the first time? Yeah, I thought you said yes. that he scared you. The first time, I literally thought that there was a chance he might even throw me out the window. It was that, I would say, it was interesting for several reasons. One of them was he wasn't listening to myself or the other physician. And even though uh, he sort of did what we asked him to do, he acted very uh, unorthodox in that he wouldn't do it, and then he would do it. So when I asked him to lie on the floor to take his electrocardiogram, he would flex his pectoralis major muscles, and it would fasciculate the electrocardiogram so we couldn't get a good one. And finally I said, please don't do that. And he was looking at himself in the mirror, which was floor to ceiling, and... He wouldn't stop. Finally, he decided it was time to stop. It's only a 20-second lead time to do the EKG. We got it done, and then he sat up. And then I said, um, Mike, I have to take blood from you. Would you please sit in this chair? And then I put a tourniquet around his arm. And when I got the needle close to his arm, he got up and ran off into what? the living room. And he put on the VH1 at the time, or one of those MTV stations, and blasted the music and I looked at the other guy and I'm holding the needle in my hand and I'm thinking oh well at least he left before I had the needle stuck in his arm who knows where it would have gone after that uh, and then he came back after his manager at the time Rory Holloway came in the room and said hey docs how's it going he says hey Mike turn the turn that down a little Mike didn't listen to him he, was he totally drugged out at oh, the time? No. I think he was just acting out. I think it was all just him being the toughest guy in the room at all times and letting you know that he could do and say and be anything he wanted whenever he wanted. Anyway, he came to the point where uh, Rory Holloway got him to sit back in the chair and I had all the tubes. I had multiple tubes I had to take at the same time. So I stuck him with the needle and I'm switching tubes, and for the first time in the 20 minutes or so that we had been in the, in the facility, uh, the condo, the first time he says to me, hey, Doc, would you do me a favor? I said, sure. I mean, I'm still switching tubes out of vacutainers, out of the uh, needle that's stuck in his arm. And I said, sure, whatever, as soon as I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> so I pulled the pulled the uh, needle out. I put pressure on the thing. I put everything on the table, and uh, you know the tourniquet was over there. He says, "Would you take the cook's blood pressure?" I think he's got high blood pressure and he's not doing anything about it. Totally normal, <laughs> you know. Concern for the cook, nice, whatever, but totally out of place for what happened yeah. prior to that. Yeah. So then I took the band aid, put it on the thing folded his arm up, just said, hold that there for a minute, and uh, I walked off to take the blood, the blood pressure of the cook. 
which was sky high, and I told him a few things to do, and he should go see a doctor. And his, he lived in Brooklyn, the, the cook. But Mike got up and ran back in the, in the other room, the, the living room, and started turning the, two, you know, the music up again. You know, he was gone. And then, and then we said, oh, wait, he still needs so, to give us a urine sample, <laughs> which we got finally, and we left. I said, wow, he's either going to be in jail or dead. So with Tyson, you were with semi-controlled violence. But then you had another case where you were in the midst of true violence, and that was at the Boston Marathon. Yes, Boston was uh, quite an experience. My job at Boston is uh, as the elite athlete area physician, so the top male and female runners, about 100 to 120 people, uh, must report to my area following the marathon. And I had just closed down the area. We had finished for the day uh, in that area, and I usually report to either the A or the B tent to help out, depending upon what kind of need is there is, and sometimes they'll let me know before. On this day, they didn't really tell me where I needed to be because they weren't overwhelmed by weather conditions or other problems. So I went to the A tent, did a little bit of triage inside the tent, and then went to the front of the tent. Uh, when I got to the front of the tent, the student that I had been shadowing with me all day um, was looking at the runners. Uh, this is the area in front of the tent is a half a block uh, from the finish line. And I said to him, how many people do you think are going to come into the tent for the rest of the day? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, well, you can figure that out. I said, look out front. We're now four hours or so into the marathon. Count the number of people are coming over in one minute. And he did, and it's an hour. It's 100 people at that particular time in the marathon. So then I said to him, well, 4% of the people typically on a good day are going to come into the medical tent. So you got to figure that that's going to be how many people. If it's, you know, 100 people in a minute, that means it's going to be, you know, multiply that by an hour. And I said, and people are coming in for till six or seven hours. So that's how many people they're going to be finishing. He said, oh, okay. And uh, that's how you know how to prepare. Then the bomb went off. I looked to my left and I saw the plume of smoke starting to rise. And I noticed that no one was standing in that area. That area was at least 10 or 12 people wide, usually about three to four people deep. Uh, I yelled into the tent, there's going to be about 40 casualties. Get rid of everybody that can get out of here. And then ran to the spot. So you knew it was a bomb? Yes. How yes. did you know? Well, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that there was no one standing in that space anymore. Um, on the way to the spot, there were people yelling, go back, go back, medical, go. So I said, that's an interesting way of putting it. And then the other bomb went off just as I got to that spot where the first bomb went off. The second bomb was up the block further, uh, probably, uh, you know, another maybe three quarters of a block away. Uh, my thought process was, well, at least if there's a third bomb, it won't be where the other two went off. That was rationale, I guess. 
I looked into the area and there were people on the ground. Uh, I noted the gentleman, very important gentleman, who lost both of his legs, uh, Jeff Bauman. Uh, obviously, I didn't know his name at the time. Uh, and someone was had their shirt off and was applying it to uh, a, one of the stumps on his legs. And uh, we were yelling to get people away from here immediately. The fastest transport we had at that moment were wheelchairs. We have a hundred wheelchairs that go through the finish from the finish line through through the chutes where we make people walk through the chutes because uh, one of the things that is the most common reason why people collapse is uh, when they stop running they stop pumping their blood through their system and uh, they pass out just from that. So we want them to keep walking. They stop running, but we want them to keep walking. So the chutes are very important, and then the wheelchairs if people stop. What do you, what are, what do you mean chutes? You keep people confined into the chutes so they can't leave the area, so that if something happens to them in the first uh, 20 minutes or 30 minutes of when they finish, that's the most common time for them to have exercise-associated collapse. Very common but very benign condition. So you put them in a wheelchair, you take them to medical tent, you lie them down, put their feet up, they get better right away and they can leave. So we had the wheelchairs at the site and that's why Jeff Bauman was put in a wheelchair and moved immediately. But then there were several other people with one leg that they had lost, had been blown off by the force of the bomb. So those people we started tending to and I started yelling with others that we needed to put tourniquets on them, use your belts, um, use your lanyards. I was kneeled over someone yelling for a belt and... Have you ever been in a comparable situation? Uh, no. There were wounded everywhere. You could see pools of blood. When I stepped up onto the sidewalk, uh, my foot touched a bare foot. Oh my separated God. from the person whose it was. Um, one of the people that uh, I put in a wheelchair had no muscle mass behind her calf. Uh, it had denuded the uh, skin, the muscle mass, which would make up your gastrocnemius and your soleus, and I could put my finger into her bone. I put her in a wheelchair, told the person driving the wheelchair, who was a, I found out was a physical therapy student at Boston University, uh, to bring that person to the back of the A medical tent. Don't stop in the beginning of the tent, go all the way to the back, which is where the EMS personnel are, the EMTs. Um, they have, that's what we call our ICU in the medical tent. And that's also where we would transport people. And I knew that these people obviously had to be transported to the hospital. I knew, also knew that we had four ambulances immediately at the back of the tent another four ambulances uh, outside, the med outside the medical tent and lined up. When those four would take people away, they would come in. And then we had a total of 22 ambulances ready to take people away that were stationed outside of that area but could come to take the place of the eight that were there immediately. So if we had a major catastrophe, 
like this, we could mobilize very quickly. Tell us about what you're doing now, Mark. Uh, currently, I'm the clinical dean at the Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is located on 125th Street in New York, so it's in the uh, heart of Harlem. As clinical dean, I'm the kind of in charge of the curriculum for the third and fourth year uh, DO medical students who are uh, getting clinical rotations at different hospitals uh, that we affiliate with, as well as outpatient facilities where they go. Uh, to do training. How did you end up doing this from a general medicine practice? Well, I was uh, served in a capacity uh, while I was doing normal osteopathic family medicine on the Commission on Osteopathic College Accreditation uh, for five years, so I had some expertise in the accreditation standards for osteopathic medical schools and the Turo school started in 2007, graduated its first class in 2011 and they asked me to, my, for my expertise and I worked part-time there from 2007 till 2016 in various capacities within the administration and also teaching in the first, second, third and fourth years. So you're no longer in the active participation of practice of medicine? You're more administrative? Uh, half day a week I precept residents in a Harlem family medicine program. They asked me if I would lend my expertise and teach a little bit, so I do that a half day a week. I see patients with the residents in family medicine. So in your long history of practice in the United States, can you tell us about Obamacare as it's being practiced today and whether you think it's a successful program. Sure, I think we have to go back though uh, before that name came up. Uh, Obamacare is a, uh, uh, as I, when, when I teach health policy uh, to the students and, and I have taken a health policy fellowship and then I did a master's in public health. So that background comes into my answer as to why I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say and that is. Right, but you also have been on the front lines. Absolutely. Uh, definitely practicing under under a lot of different systems for 35 years. But the current iteration of what the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which is a, its official name, was a mock-up basically of what the Heritage Foundation produced as a way of producing a system within the United States to get more people onto a health care roles without spending as much money and it worked in Massachusetts when Mitt Romney was governor uh, very well. It was uh, totally uh, dismissed as functional prior to it being instituted. They said there won't be enough primary care physicians to take care of these people and basically it was a tremendous success. So it had worked already in Massachusetts, had gotten a lot more people insurance, it had not broken the bank it had actually worked. I think that once it was instituted on a national level, there were many other problems that took place with it. You know, when you do something in a small way, in a state, one state, uh, it can work a lot more easily than when you do it nationally, where when you tie in Medicaid to it, mm -hmm. then it becomes a different kind of- Was attack. Medicaid tied in in Massachusetts? It was, but to much lesser of a degree. Could you explain yeah. <laughs> Medicaid? 
Medicaid is a difficult subject for this reason. It's not the same in every state. Okay. So you have what people usually assume is a 50-50 split in cost between the federal government and the state government on how you pay for Medicaid, and that's not true in every state. In some states, they set the Medicaid limit on your income at the lowest level that federal law allows. And one of those would be like maybe Tennessee. In New York, you're talking about 250 times or more above that number. So a lot more people in the general public have Medicaid in New York. And the state has to provide a lot more money for it. But in Tennessee, you have a lot less people per capita, potentially. The reality, though, is Tennessee is a very poor state. So consequently, they can't even afford the people that they have on it. So they couldn't do what New York did, make it go up to the 250% of the poverty level. They wouldn't be able to sustain it. And in, and in truth, Tennessee actually went bankrupt on their Medicaid uh, years before Obamacare even started. But some states that had money increased their Medicaid rolls substantially. So they put more people on quote-unquote Obamacare or the PPACA, and it was successful because more people had insurance, but it also cost quite a bit more for that state and for the federal government. So when you ask, is it, was it successful? Successful at what? That's the question. You know, was it the cost? Well, when we talk about health policy, you have to meet three criteria. Quality, cost, and access. If you can't get all three to go in the direction you want it, is it a failed program? Maybe. Because if the cost goes up, quality may go up, access may go up, but the cost isn't sustainable. You have a problem. If you get quality, cost, and access all to go in the right direction, then you have a tremendous winner. So you've seen it, at least in New York and New Jersey. Yes. In those two states, has it worked? It has worked. It has gotten more people on the rolls, and get, got more insurance, and it didn't bankrupt either state. So the cost was actually some savings from keeping people out of the hospital by getting them access and getting them into the care. So you saw some savings as well, but the cost still went up. It was not a cost neutral, and the cost didn't go down. Mm -hmm. But New York and New Jersey could sustain that. Places like Tennessee and other states were already having a much more difficult time, so they couldn't, and I, and I don't want to say this is not just Tennessee, and I'm not you know, trying to go after <laughs> Tennessee, but their Medicaid program was something that we studied in the health policy course I was in. So that was one of the reasons why I knew a little bit more about it. But many, many other states yeah. were in Tennessee's boat as far as this went. Many more people got on the rolls, but much more cost was exerted to do that. So their savings was small, but their cost up front was high, higher than what their savings were. So it cost them more money. Is, is part of the main problem that most people just don't care much about primary care? Well, or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe more people care about primary care than I think. No, I think what you're getting at is there's about 140, roughly 140 allopathic or colleges, that medical schools that are giving an MD degree out, about 140. There's about 34 giving a DO degree with 
but, uh, but they're on 51 campuses, so it's like having almost 51 schools. So there's nearly a quarter of all graduates of all medical schools today are osteopathic medical students. And the reason that's important from your question is that when you looked at the U.S. News & World Report, even though they doctored the statistics somewhat, seven of the top or nine of the top ten schools for primary care or family medicine were DO schools. Well, that's our philosophy. Treat the patient as a whole. Treat everything about the patient. It lends itself toward family medicine. So what you see is states where we have osteopathic medical schools where they didn't have other schools before, you're seeing a tremendous turnaround in the population health as it stood before the school started and as it stands now that the school has been there 10 years or 20 years, like Pikeville, Kentucky. The Kentucky College of Osteopathic Medicine seeded Eastern Kentucky with primary care physicians at a rate of 65% of their graduates. DO schools are producing over 55% of their graduates stay in family medicine and primary care. 95% really of the MD schools are producing specialists. And the reason that those statistics are so out of whack, 95% of doctors? Of their doctors that are coming out of Yale, Harvard, UCSF, all these top-tiered quote-unquote schools, a lot of them go into research, a lot of them go into subspecialties, Mm -hmm. because when they take their initial number of how many are going into primary care, they count all these people who go into internal medicine and the number that goes into pediatrics. And the reality is very few, almost none, go into family medicine in the allopathic schools. But when you look at internal medicine, 85% go into a subspecialty after internal medicine. They're not doing general primary care. Mm-hmm. And another 5 to 8% are doing hospitalist work. They only work in a hospital. That's not primary care either. Pediatrics is getting like internal medicine residents. They now are doing 70% to 80% subspecialties. They're doing neonatology, they're doing cardiology, they're doing pulmonary, they're doing not doing outside of the hospital primary care, giving you your shots, giving you your... And is that because that's because of the money? Well, it's a good question. Prestige? It can be prestige. I can tell you that when I took students from Mount Sinai School of Medicine, now called the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, when I had them in my office, they would do four weeks of family medicine. And a lot of them said, you know, this was great. I got to see my own patient. I even saw them more than once in a month. The first time they had ever seen some longitudinal care. And they said, this is so much fun. I really get to know the patient because I'm in there alone with the patient talking to them about what's going on. And this is, this is wonderful. Then they'd go back to Mount Sinai for their next rotation. And they would say, you know, I'm really thinking about family medicine. And they would say, what? You're too smart for that. What's wrong with you? Why would you do that? <laughs> you know what the reality is? There's a study been done. The study showed three specialties, psychiatry, cardiology, and family medicine. And they said that the psychologist sees patients that would be considered one times complex. The cardiologists see patients that are three times complex. The family physician sees patients that are five times complex. What does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. It means that you got to be the smartest doctors in the world have to be family physicians because they're making the most difficult decisions about the care for their patients. 
because they've got patients with that cardiology problem, with that psychiatric problem, and with two other problems. Because patients constantly come into the family doctor's office and says, okay, I got four to five things going on with me. You have to take care of all of them. Mm-hmm. I'm the gathering money, from the your... Money, the money? Yeah. Okay. Well, that was one of the things, the right. money. The but... money is, is very interesting. Medicare and Medicaid, and then it follows through on the commercial insurance side. When they pay doctors, they pay them for what they do. Mm-hmm. So they say, okay, you saw a patient in the office. Well, that's worth this much. And then they say to the gastroenterologist, well, you did this scope. That's worth four times what that... And then they say to the cardiologist, well, you did this intervention because you did a, you did a cath. Well, that's worth a lot more money. And you know who's on those panels that decide that? The specialists. specialists. Now, so here's the most important statistics, I think, in the money question. If you as a patient have a family physician as your doctor, you're going to save 33% on your health care costs because they know you so well, they know what you need to get and what you don't need to get. So utilization of services diminishes because you don't need it. Whereas if you see a specialist who doesn't know you, they get this rundown of things no matter what. But the second part of it that's even more important, the quality of care goes up by 19% just by having a family physician. You reduce your hospitalizations potentially by 80%. Why do you think that is? Because a family physician knows you. They know what they, they know. And they what, prevent the problems. And they, they and they can prevent the problems. And that's what the osteopathic profession was always into, that prevention. My people to, you know, I can talk to people about the greatest things about seeing the Mike Tyson or or treating or uh, treating one of the greatest track and field athletes of all time, Carl Lewis. Numerous gold medals in four Olympics. This guy was unbelievable. World record holder in the 100, 200, the long, long jump. jump. Yeah. Guy was amazing. I treated him on a picnic table so that he could run in the 4x100 relay at the New York track and field games. If I didn't treat him, he wasn't going to run. And I put him back out on the field, well, like that. I had been drug testing him earlier in the day. The doctor knew I was there for the meet and told me to come to see him. That's, that's great experience and things and whatnot, but that's not what I'm most proud of. I'm more proud that I prevented, I'm convinced of this, St. Peter's College at the time, now St. Peter's University, Division I basketball, men's and women's, I did all my physicals in August, and I said, you, 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 and you, and you have ligamentous laxity in your ankles. You have to do these exercises with the trainer from now until basketball season starts, then I'm going to re-examine you. And I'm going to say, if you have a ligamentous laxity, you have to wear air casts through the whole season, including practices. We had no sprained ankles that year. Wow. I gave everybody a flu shot on the winter teams for every sport. We had no one out with the flu ever when I was the team physician. Prevention. You know how many teams in college, the kids are living together, they're living, you know, all over each other. You know, they're sharing everything. And they, they get sick. So you have an, uh, an, an NCAA top 10 team, and they lose two games in November, December because the flu season hit. 
because three of their players either can't play or can't play well, that's a major problem because your team doctor is either an orthopedic surgeon who doesn't know anything about the flu shot <laughs> or, or somebody who didn't do prevention. That's why <laughs> primary care physicians like DOs in family medicine are team doctors throughout the sports in this country. Mm-hmm. Interesting. At a much higher number than our total number in the population of doctors. My question is, how do you get the people to go to primary care doctors? If you have more primary care doctors, will that make more people go to them? The pay incentive that I spoke of earlier, the pay incentive to the gastroenterologist who does scopes all day, upper and lower, they get a, they make a lot more money than a family physician does. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I showed, though, to my students and at continuing medical education talks that I've given to other practicing osteopathic physicians in family medicine was, if they included osteopathic manipulation in their patient care, mm-hmm. then patients would, one, have a better opinion and trust them more, and two, would have better patient satisfaction, but three, they would get better care, use less medication, and we have an opioid epidemic. Mm. Are you kidding me? If you're not using osteopathic manipulation, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality says you should be. Their national guideline clearinghouse says if you're an osteopathic physician, you should be doing OMT on your patients with low back pain. That does not say you should be giving them drugs. You're on the front lines in one respect regarding the opioid epidemic. Absolutely. So as we end this, tell us how we got to this point on this opioid epidemic and how do we get out of it? Well, to get into it, it's unconscionable. It starts with the drug companies selling the doctors on better quote-unquote products for the release of the opioid in the body. What, they, what I mean by that is opioids have been around for decades in all kinds of ways, but in the drugs, the drug delivery changes, it becomes a new drug to the FDA. So the company sells it to the doctor and says, this will be better for your patients. They only have to take it once or twice a day. Mm-hmm. They don't have to take it four times a day. So they're going to get better relief. That's part of it. The doctors buy into this and start prescribing different doses in different quantities for different types of delivery systems of the opioids. So they're selling it to the doctors that as a panacea to get these patients who have chronic, supposedly have chronic pain. Now the problem is they're treating the pain and not the underlying condition. Okay, so people have always had pain. Right. Why now do we have an opioid epidemic? What's interesting is that 99% of all opioid drug use is in the United States. 99%? Yep. Where does that number come from? The interesting thing is that in foreign countries, they don't use opioids on a regular basis for low-level or mid-level pain. What about after surgery? And they only use it for a few days. If you can use it in less than five days, in most surgeries you should be pain-free, at least being able to go onto an NSAID and acetaminophen and be fine. That's what they are in other countries. Why are they not fine here? It's because... Aspirin or Tylenol? It's aspirin, Tylenol, and 
medications, the uh, the yeah, over-the-counter yeah. Advil, ibuprofen, and naproxen, which is Aleve or others. Yeah. But in doses that are a little higher than you would use over-the-counter. Okay. Mm-hmm. And those are fine. Okay. So then what happened here? The what doc- happened here was they sold doctors on, on prescribing at higher doses of opioids over longer periods of time. And you should never prescribe like that. Are these, were these doctors just I never stu- stupid like and irresponsible? Well, that's a good question. They lazy? Didn't, they didn't want... Lazy is a good answer. Because they don't want to be bothered with phone calls from patients telling them that they have pain. Hmm. And then we, re- then we invented all these other ways of dealing with pain that pay astronomical amount of money to do these types of procedures that are absolutely not proven like most of your low back or back pain type of surgeries. Yeah. No better than physical therapy. No better than regular exercise. Why would you put yourself under anesthesia to get pain, to get back surgery, if you're not gonna be any better than if you just did physical therapy? And it's because we have MRIs all the time that are looking at people and saying, there's something wrong here, when the reality is we don't really know what normal is when we look at an MRI because they're reading it as being abnormal on everybody. I can tell you that. You're talking about primarily lower back pain? Well, I'm talking, I'll give you an example of a knee. I'm positive that most people have a torn medial meniscus in the posterior horn if you're over 35 and you did a lot of exercise. Really? That's not a surgical procedure then. Yeah. Don't go to an orthopod for that. You go to the specialist, you, you go to the person who's like me, who says, I'm going to do a physical exam. And if you don't have any of the findings that I would like to see in your meniscus, that I would then send you to the orthopod, then you don't go there and you don't get the MRI. I do a physical exam and I go, okay, you don't Are need an MRI. most meniscus surgeries unnecessary? I don't know if it's most, but I would say it's probably around uh, 40% or 50%. Yes. Well, look at cardiac catheterizations. I'm sitting across the, the table from a guy who is the executive director of the American College of Cardiology, himself a cardiologist. And I said, you know, I'm just curious. What would you say are the number of cardiac casts that are normal that don't really need to be done? And he said 40, 45%. I said, really, I heard it was as high as 62%. He said, well, maybe somewhere in between. What kind of a conversation is that? I said, is it that your criteria is too lax, or is it because the doctors are just doing it for the money? And he says, well, I'm sure both contribute to that. Now, this is, you're talking about a major condemnation of American medicine, A, on the procedure front and B on the opioid front. The two are related. Absolutely. And then it's all related to Obamacare and the system well, in the end. It, with or without Obamacare, we, ha- we have had oh. this. The kicker here is, is that if the money to the doctors makes the doctors want to do more procedures, then they're going to do more procedures. Yeah. I, I was at a, at a meeting of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. This, or, this is a governmental agency that reports to both Congress and to the administration. Very few of those in in Washington. But when that happens, no one can keep them quiet because they report to both. So one can't overrule what they say because they've already reported it to the other guy. 
So it's a very, very, very powerful group. The person who is the CEO of that agency for years through Republican and Democratic presidents was Carolyn Clancy, MD. Utmost respect for that woman, brilliant woman. She, we, we took a break in the meeting and she ended up walking out the same door I did. And I said, hey, Dr. Clancy, Martin Levine, I'm representing the American Hospital Association, how you doing? I said, uh, you know, as a nice failing physician, prevention, and she says, Martin, let me put it to you this way. If I had my druthers, I would give all the money to the family physician and let them dish it out. <laughs> do you see any hope with the opioids in America? Well, we have to do are some of the things, believe it or not, the Republican governor of Kentucky, uh, and I was just with him at the Republican Governors Association meeting in Washington, D.C., uh, not four days ago. Uh-huh. Um, uh, he, they had an opioid, a little bit of an opioid discussion, and he and the uh, new governor in Kansas, but, but others also were talking about it. And it's all, everything is tied together. Can these people get access to care? Can the care they get be the right care for them? But the real thing is, and, and this goes to a lot of these people who were on opioids, absolutely positively have major addictive personalities and problems mm-hmm. and mental illness of other types. Yeah, that because makes sense. Nobody, nobody takes the opi- opioids in a vacuum. And the idea here is, is that you have to have enough mental health facilities, and that's where Obamacare and the Medicaid came in. If they don't have coverage, no one will take them. Mm-hmm. No one will take these mentally ill people and treat them because they're not being paid for it. Mental health was carved out of a lot of Medicaid programs because they couldn't afford it. The state couldn't afford it. Yeah. But in, in the state of Kentucky, they put several things into effect. One, you can only doctor can only prescribe three days of opioids at a time. Five days can be enough to make people addiction really? and get addicted. As little as yeah. that is what they I are, think one day would be enough to make now, somebody what they are addicted. Now but what I've always told all of my patients, if you're going in for a surgery, especially like a knee surgery, where they're, a, a total knee replacement, where they're going to saw bone on, on either end, they don't talk about that, but that's pretty painful, okay? I say to them, take as much pain medication as you possibly need immediately. So when you wake up from surgery and you have a, hell of, you have a lot of pain, Take whatever they're giving you, and if it doesn't work, you tell them you want more. Because in the first three days of post-op care, if you get as much pain medication as you need, you won't need it afterward. If you don't take the pain medication, and you only get a strips and drabs because you're afraid of getting addicted, let's say, then you're sunk because you're gonna have pain for a lot longer. There's feedback mechanisms in the body that tell you you didn't relieve the pain, you need more pain medication. So the next time you need it, you're gonna need more. And the next time you're gonna need more because the amount you got wasn't enough. So kill the pain immediately. Hey everybody. First, we just wanna say thank you to all of the people listening to this podcast. You guys are the hip folks, the early adopters. You make this thing worth doing. But it would be really great if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, give us a rating. 
It'll just take a second, and it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you next week.